Well, we're in our second sermon in a new sermon series going through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Let me remind you a little bit about uh, the book of Acts. And actually, before I do that, let me just tell you a word about today's message. Uh, I was going in a total different direction with this message up until Friday morning. And I was on my knees in prayer, just committing it to the Lord. I felt like this is a pretty difficult passage because it's a, you'll see the, the context of this passage is interesting, what's going on here. And as I was praying, honestly, the Lord just gave me a whole different outline. Uh, and I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper, got to my office that morning, and I wrote what you're, getting, what you're going to be receiving today. And so I, I do believe the Lord has a message to give to us. I believe that it's very clear from the Word of God, and I believe that you will be encouraged today. Uh, and I, that excites me. Anytime the Lord is clear with me like that on a sermon preparation week, uh, I feel excited to present the Word to you. A little uh, context for the book of Acts. What's going on? This is a whole book of the Bible, the book of Acts. What are we dealing with? Remember what Acts is all about. The, the gospel writer Luke, if you open your New Testament, so you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kick off the New Testament, those are the four gospel accounts. Those are the four historical biographies of the life of Jesus Christ. And the very next book that happens, so you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the very next one is the book of Acts. That's what we're studying right now. And Acts, the same guy that wrote the gospel of Luke, so Luke, he wrote a historical biography of the life of Jesus where he begins it by saying, I interviewed actual eyewitnesses in order to write this account of the life of Jesus. That's the gospel of Luke. He then wrote a follow-up, a second piece to the gospel of Luke called the book of Acts. And we talked about last week what this book is all about. The gospel of Luke gets us all the way up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The book of Acts then takes us on the, the journey of the next 30 years of the work of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit as the gospel was going out into the world. And you'll remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8, a a critical verse for understanding uh, the whole book of Acts. It reads this. So, uh, but Jesus says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is about to ascend. Remember, he's resurrected. He spent 40 days teaching the disciples, appearing in many different places. Many people saw the risen Jesus. And then he was about to ascend. And the very last instructions he gives is, look, you're going to be my witnesses. Where? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And quite literally, the book book of Acts is playing out that narrative. It shows how the gospel went from Jerusalem and then to the next outer ring, to Judea, then to the next outer ring, to Samaria, and then finally to the ends of the world. And the book of Acts ends rather abruptly. If you read the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28 is this, this bizarre, abrupt ending, like there's no closure to the book. And that's intentional. And the point of that is that it continues to this day. You and me find ourselves in Acts chapter 29, the continuation of the book of Acts, of the gospel going out to the farthest ends of the earth. Now, today's passage, Jesus has resurrected. Uh, He's about to ascend, but his last, or he has already ascended, but his last instructions are to wait for the Holy Spirit. So he tells his disciples, he says, don't go anywhere, don't do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit. This passage today is that short, however long it was, a couple days perhaps, as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, next week, the Holy Spirit arrives and changes everything. I mean, 
from that point on in human history, the church is forever different. This short period, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet, but they've got these instructions from Jesus to wait, and we're going to learn what that little community was like. What were they doing? What made them authentic? What made them powerful? And not only that, they had this difficult decision to make. If you remember, Jesus was betrayed by one of the 12 disciples. Remember, it was Judas Iscariot. It's a very difficult thing for us to realize. I mean, I don't know if you can ever think of what it would be like to have your best friend betrayed and crucified because another one of your close friends is the one who betrayed him. That'd be a pretty difficult thing for a community to go through. But they're in this situation where they have to replace Judas. And so this is the passage where they're trying to figure out how are we going to replace Judas as one of the apostles. And what I want to do today is I want to read the passage and then I'm going to draw out just simply five observations that will help us get insight into this early New Testament community before the Holy Spirit. Okay, five observations. So let's read the whole passage starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And Peter said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he, Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now the passage takes a break here. This is not Peter speaking. This is the author interjecting. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, Judas, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Peter's picked up again, it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And again, let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. To take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right. Five simple observations. The story is not too complicated to understand, but let's try to get some insight into this. Observation number one their hearts were of one accord. Their hearts were of one accord. Verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, the term of one accord, maybe it it seems simple to understand that, but let's dig in and make sure we kind of search the meaning of this. They had single-mindedness. This early New Testament church, this entire group of 120 that was constituting this first church, frankly, I guess this is about 120 people, so this is about the group, right? 
the group that they had, they were all of single-mindedness. They had the same vision of where they were going, what they were trying to do, how they were going to go about it. They, they weren't all pursuing these different ideas and one going in this direction, another going in this direction, one living their life for this purpose, one living their life for this purpose. They, they had come together around the resurrection of Jesus, this historical monumental moment in each of their lives. I mean, think about it. If you saw a man who you had just seen crucified alive in the flesh and teaching you and then ascend into heaven, your life would be forever different, Right? You, and if you did that with a group of 120 people, if right now we saw that take place, there would be some commonality, some com- communality bringing us together, right? We'd have this experience that just knit our minds and our hearts together as one. It's really interesting. If you look at the team that's around there, let's just go through the list of people he's got. This is a fascinating group to say they were of one accord. I mean, consider these men. First of all, You've got Peter, right? Peter was a rough and tough fisherman. I mean, these are, these are cultural people. They're, they're, you can kind of get a sense for who they were and what their culture and what their background was. And we know a lot about Peter. Peter was an extrovert. He sometimes put his foot in his mouth. But he was bold. He'd say things that no one else had the willingness to say. But he also had the roots of being a fisherman. You've got Matthew, who was a tax collector. He, he was kind of the despised of society because he had a long history of, of extorting people and stealing money, especially from the poor and the vulnerable. And then you've got a zealot in the crew. You ever looked at that? you got Simon the Zealot. You know what zealots were? Zealots were uh, political uprisers of the day. They would use violence. Oftentimes you'd find them with knives on their pocket because they would try to start riots and protests using violence to get to their ends. It, it was really interesting. When Jesus picked his people, he picked all these different people and he brought them together. And, and then you also, who else do we have? We've got women in the group. Now that's very interesting. That'll be my second point actually. But think about the context of women in that first century society. With Simon the Zealot, Peter the extrovert, Matthew the tax collector, And then you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's this older woman now who's mourning the death of her son. And remember, she was there at the crucifixion. There's something mourning the death of her son, but also celebrating his resurrection, probably in this place of of, of being very overwhelmed by it all. There's something totally profound and divine about the reality that all these different people with different cultural backgrounds, different expectations, have somehow found unity and of being of one accord within one another. You know, there are many organizations in a city like Chicago where you'll find people who have some level of unity. To be honest with you, if you look at uh, professional sports, I think professional sports are able to draw a very diverse group of people with very diverse group of backgrounds and form unity with each other. You go to a Bears game in Chicago, you'll find people from all different races, all different socioeconomic backgrounds sitting next to each other in the same seats, except for the people in the skybox seats, but, but basically sitting together in the same seats. And when your team scores a touchdown, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, you're standing up, you're giving each other high fives, right? The NFL, in some ways, does this of one accord thing. They got their own problems. I'm not boasting on the NFL. But in some ways, when it comes to what I'm describing right here, they do this of one accord thing pretty well, don't they? And yet, what the church has ought to be 10,000 times more clear of what we mean by one accord. 
The term of one accord was a favorite of Luke's. In fact, it shows up, I think it is 10 times in the book of Acts. It shows up nowhere else in the Bible except once in the book of Romans by Paul. That exact term. And let me read to you that verse. Romans 15, verses 5 to 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're getting to the idea of what it means to have one accord. You ever seen a tuning fork when, a, when a, like a piano, a guy who comes to tune a piano, he tunes a piano. If the keys are out of tune, he, he, he'll, he'll strike a, a tuning fork and it will make a certain pitch. And then every, the, the, he'll, he'll tune the keys of the piano in, until it's in alignment and you can literally hear it. When you're tuning an instrument, if, it's, if, the, if the waves are not in resonance with each other, it, it sounds like this. Wah, 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 wah. You can hear they're not in sync with each other. And so you tune it, and then suddenly it's wah. That's how you tune. You can hear it with your own ear when it's in tune. What Paul is illustrating here is that the church was becoming in tune, not just with each other, but with the standard, with Jesus. You see that? Let me read Romans 15 again. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one accord glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a one accordedness that must be true of this community if we want to reflect Christ. And, and finding that rhythm, finding that unity is not about our individual preferences on how we go about the church. That's not it. And I'll tell you what, we're a fairly diverse church. In the city of Chicago, we're a very diverse church. We're growing further in our diversity. And just like this early community, if it becomes our preferences of how we do things, and we start making anybody or everybody assimilate to one of our own preferences, we've missed it. What we're assimilating towards is the resonance that Jesus Christ sets and his vision for what the church ought to be. And all of us come together underneath his headship and say, whatever it takes, we're in. We want Jesus to be glorified above everything else. I remember a story a while ago at my wife's, before we were married, my wife was part of a church in Indianapolis. A story from her small group in that church. And this, this young couple, they were... Uh, they were deeply committed into the church. They were deeply committed into that small group. And it was a real a family. I mean, they were doing life together in many different ways. And one of the guys got a promotion, a huge job promotion. I think it was out in New York somewhere. Way more money. You know, just, just a big step for their career. And they brought it before the small group. And they said, we're praying about this. Will you help us discern, is this the right thing for us to do? Should we take this promotion? They prayed about it. They brought it to their pastor. Because right? he was a member of the church. They didn't just want to move away without like, really praying. Am I in unity with the church? Because it's not my life. It's the church community that's most important to me. And, and I want to be a part of that, right? And after much prayer and discernment involving the small group and involving the pastor, they decided it wasn't the right thing to do because they were called to be a part of this community and they had not been released from that community yet. Hmm. That sounds odd. And yet... It's exactly what the New Testament church was doing. When we bring our individualism into the church, 
our individual career paths, our individual desires, our individual use of our money, our individual, you name it. Basically what we do in the modern church is we say we're going to live individual lives, we're going to pursue our careers, we're going to pursue all the stuff we do, our church is going to be a little community, we need to have some, some kind of connectedness to our church, but in general we live our own lives. That was not this. They were part of a community. They, they dug in with each other, and it was all about Jesus. He was the head of it all. We've got to be challenged by that. They had one accord with each other. Number two, observation number two. The community was counterculturally complementarian. The community was counterculturally complementarian. Where am I getting this from? Verse 14, once again, we read this. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. And Mary, the mother of Jesus. Then the very next verse, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Your translation says brothers. The original Greek actually says among the man brothers. <laughs> or if you want to change the language to it, he stood up in verse 15 among the brothers that were men. Here's the point. Oftentimes when you see the word brothers in the Bible, it means brothers and sisters. That's, it's kind of like when I say hey guys to a group of men and women. Like, I'm, I'm referring to everybody. Oftentimes in the Bible, you see brothers, it's referring to the entire community. Not there. Here it's, he stood up among the man brothers, the, the brothers who were men. Two things we notice here. First of all, it's very difficult for us to appreciate how bizarre the fact that they were gathered together with the women should be. For first, first century Israel, uh, the fact that the women were gathered together with the men in this unique community. By the way, when he says that they had a group of 120, that's not an arbitrary number. In first century, according to like rabbinical, rabbinical rules, in order to have, form a new community, you needed at least 120 people. What the author is doing here is he's saying this is an official new community being formed. But they would have only counted the men back then. But here we have the men and the women being included. This was radically countercultural. And by the way, Jesus, in terms of being countercultural to what was the wrong standard of that day, he was very countercultural. You remember how often Jesus was bringing women into his crew? Women were considered many of the people who were disciples following him in the larger crowd, not one of the 12 apostles, but of the larger group of disciples following him. Jesus set an entire new tone for what it meant for a community to have men and women both worshiping God together. And yet, in the very same passage, we see something interesting. When it came to exercising authoritative decision-making within the local church, the group of qualified men, namely the apostles, got together and they made decisions for the church of what they should do. Peter stood up among the brothers who were men. Now, why is this so significant? Here at Park, we're a complementarian church. Last week in our members meeting, I spent about 20 minutes going over a document that I'm going to share a little bit with you more today, but the document is explaining Park's position on the roles of men and women in the church. And the first thing I want you to see is that for the first century, it was the, the, the idea of how the men and women were structured was radically countercultural. That women would be included and, and be able to learn alongside the men and be, be made leaders in many different capacities within the early church. As you see the gospel go forward, we see women who are opening their homes and financing the church. I mean, there was nothing like this in first century. That was the early church. 
And yet at the exact same time, they were qualified biblical men who were called to step into positions of authority to lead the church. Complementarianism says that men and women are made equal in the image of God. They have these both divine, beautiful places within the family of God where there's a mutuality and a a serving of one another and and a going after the kingdom together with one another. It's incredible. And at the same time, men are not women and women are not men. There's different functions that they serve within the church and within the family. And the two key places this plays out in the Bible are within the family, where men are called to be the head of the household. And men, I will always challenge you of what that means. Being the head means that you die for the women in your life. Headship is not, about, is not primarily about authority in the Bible. Headship is primarily about giving up your rights to serve and lift up the women in your life. And then also in the church, where qualified biblical men are called to step into the role of elder, those who teach, labor in teaching, and those who labor in authoritative decision-making for the church. This is wildly countercultural once again. And this is why I'm making an entire point out of this. What happened in the early New Testament church was wildly countercultural. Everyone around them would have been looking on the church being like, that's not right. That, that, that's, that's not the way you should do this. And yet there was the church in line with what the Bible says, and they were doing it well. And once again, we're in a season where society around us is looking in on the church, and when they hear what I just said, they're going to go, that's not right. But the church has this ability to stand on the word of God and say, no, it is right, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's clear, and it leads to flourishing for all people. We live in a society that is literally blending the definitions of what it means to be a man and a woman. And I'm reading a fascinating book right now that's, that's asking the question, how did we get from a place in, in just a few short years where it would be a, a normal thing, just totally normal and acceptable, to say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body? I'm not, literally, just how do we get to a place where that would be considered normal, yes, that... How, how, what were the philosophical underpinnings to get to that place? It was a journey we got to. But, but to reject that and to say, actually, no, God made us male and female, and to do so with love and concern and gentleness and, and all the grace in the world for sinners like us, but to also stand on the word of God, that's radically countercultural in this day. We live in a day where our politicians and our leaders are attempting to equalize everything by pretending that there are no differences. Men who choose to say they're women are to share bathrooms or to share locker rooms or to share prison cells. This is quite literally insane when you keep playing it out. And the Bible gives this beautiful vision for how men and women are to relate to each other in a way that makes sense, in a way that God designed. I shared last week, I I helped put together a large document on the doctrine of complementarianism. It's over 30 pages long. We worked for over a year with a group of men and women laboring to work through all the relevant passages because we know this is one of those subjects the church needs equipping more than ever. We're being fed so many different narratives, and we need to go back to the Word of God and say, God, what does your Word say? How do we handle this? That resource was made available to our members, and in the coming weeks and months, we'll make it available to everyone who's not yet a member, but I encourage you, that's a reason to become a member, so that you can get this stuff right away when it comes out, but we'll make it available to you in the coming weeks as we move forward. Number three, this early New Testament church was constantly in prayer together constantly in prayer together. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. 
Another way to say that, that they were actively engaged in the work of prayer continuously. It was this nonstop thing they were doing. It doesn't mean they didn't go home and eat meals. It just meant that there was this regular cadence, not just of individual prayer. I love individual prayer. As Christians, I hope you have powerful, growing prayer lives that are sustaining and that are growing and you're spiritually maturing and you're loving your time in prayer. And if you don't have that, please dig into your church family. We want to help you grow in that. That's critical. But you know what else is critical? Communal prayer. If communal prayer is not a part of your regular rhythm of your days and weeks, you're missing it. I want to read to you this story of Charles Spurgeon. I've shared this before. Charles Spurgeon, I, I, I shared a quote from him recently, actually, another sermon. He's, uh, his nickname is the Prince of Preachers. Uh, he's quite, quite a solid preacher from a, a number of generations ago. In fact, uh, probably one of the great preachers of all time. And he oftentimes would say that the power of his ministry had nothing to do with his preaching. He would say it would have to do with the prayer that was taking place from his community behind the scenes. Let me read to you uh, an account of this. Charles Spurgeon was a great revival preacher. He would not take the credit for the revival. That was happening around him. When visitors would come to his church, he would take them to the basement. There in the basement, the visitors would see people on their knees in prayer. The people were praying for the souls of the people who were upstairs in the church. The people were praying for the souls of the people that had never stepped foot inside a church. The people were praying for Charles Spurgeon himself as he preached God's word. The people were fervently praying. To, to Spurgeon, the prayer meeting was the most important meeting of the week. The prayer meeting was the powerhouse of the church. According to Spurgeon, Spurgeon called this basement room the furnace room. Spurgeon said that it was this room and not his preaching that brought about revival. Prayer meetings are the throbbing machinery of the church, according to Spurgeon. Those are strong words from this great preacher. Spurgeon knew that nothing happens apart from prayer. Nothing. We could be the most talented group of people in the city of Chicago. You could come in here with all the skills that in the world will make you so much money that you don't know what to do with. You could come in here and we could literally have every spiritual gift that God has poured out on his church. And if we are not laboring together in prayer, those gifts never get fanned into flames among each other. There's this communal aspect to it again. Notice again, this is now the second point where I'm saying, I'm not just speaking about individual spiritual maturity. I'm talking about your place among the people of God. And if you don't have a communal life of prayer together, you are a Lone Ranger Christian. And everything I read about Lone Ranger Christians in the Bible is that they don't last very long. And everything I've seen as a pastor for seven years is that Lone Ranger Christians don't last very long. I have many friends that I am very concerned about where their faith is because a number of years ago, they started not going to the church family. They started disconnecting. All of a sudden, I'm like, I don't know where you are in your faith. I got many of those friends. This community is more than a place you go to on a Sunday. We must be laboring in prayer together. We started at the beginning of this year, and I hope you remember, I preached a message on prayer specifically before the year began. We started daily prayer together as a church from 12 to 12.30. We do it on Zoom. It goes every day. Some days we'll have upwards of 100 folks on it. Some days we'll have 25 to 30 folks on it. On Sunday mornings, we, don't, we do it in person over in that room. This morning, we had about 25 folks who were gathered. If you were there for this Sunday's morning prayer, can you stand up real quick? I just want you guys to see this. Go ahead. 
Keep going. Look around you. Five months from now, I hope 90% of the room is standing up. I just want you to know that. That's my hope and prayer. Go ahead, sit down. One of the first days we met to pray for that, Roberta, one of our deacons, and she's probably watching right now, actually. Roberta, she said, Rafe, I see these folks gathering for prayer this morning, and I have a vision that this whole hallway will be filled at 8.15 with people praying. Furnace room prayers. You want power in this place? Pray together. You want to see your neighbors come to know Jesus? Pray together. You want to see missionaries sent out to the farthest corners of the globe, to the most dangerous, dirty places where it's scary to go and where people lose their lives but the gospel's got to go? Pray together. You want to live the life that is really life? Pray together. You want to get over your worry and your fear and your anxiety and begin to learn to trust the sovereignty of God for the very first time in your life to speak through the worry and show you his perfect plan in the midst of it. Pray together. Church, we've started something that I believe is powerful. Daily prayer. Be in it with us. Don't think that's for somebody else. I heard someone say recently, Rafe, when you first said... When you first said we were going to do daily prayer, I thought, that's too much. We're not going to get there. He's been doing it almost every day. And he said to me, it's the best thing we've been doing in a long time. It's not too much. It's what they were doing. It's what we need to do. Join in with us. Number four, they viewed their present reality as a fulfillment of Old Testament promises. They viewed their present reality as a fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Verse 16 Peter stands up among the, the, everybody. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. First of all, can we just note Peter here for a second? <laughs> if, if you've read of Peter in the gospel accounts, this is a different guy. I mean, when, when has Peter ever stood up and said anything like this? Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. Peter's never said anything like that before. That's not Peter. This is a different guy. What got into him? He met the resurrected Jesus. And he was forever different. He was one guy doing life and ministry with Jesus. That was powerful. But then he met the resurrected Jesus. And that changed everything about him. I mean, and then this guy begins to, to see all of life around him as a fulfillment of all that God had spoken of in the Old Testament. Every decision they had to make. How are we going to make this decision? We've got 11 disciples right now because one of us just committed suicide. That's a big deal. One of their disciples had just committed suicide. What are we going to do? And he realized, right, that it was 12 disciples, 12 apostles, for a reason. Because the 12 apostles represent the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. Jesus had taught them that with clarity. So how, what are we going to do? We need a 12th. I know what we do. Let's go to the scripture. How are we going to make this decision? Is it just the best strategic decision makers? We get together in a room. Do we hire consultants? Is that what we do? Peter says, let's go to the word. And I'm certain they had a number of things going through their mind. Matthew chapter 13 verse 17 for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and they did not see it. This is Jesus speaking. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Peter recognized Jesus said the prophets longed to look into the moments that we're living in. For you as well. 
look, you are living in prophecy-fulfilled times. We have been for 2,000 years. The prophets of the Old Testament longed to look into these days. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 reminds us not only that, but that angels longed to look into the things that we're experiencing. That's amazing. Angels longed to look into your present-day reality when the Holy Spirit would be poured out in you. You are living in the unfolding of God's history according to his purposes. Your life, your circumstances, your challenges, these are not somehow detached from what God is doing in the greater story of redemptive history. This church is not somehow a minute detail somewhere off on the far corners of God's plan of redemptive history. Just like Peter saw his story wrapped up because he was reading the prophecies and he saw them fulfilled in his time and he was leading this church into the fulfillment of the word of God, so are we doing the same thing. And I've got to ask you a hard question here. How do you make decisions in your life? If, if the answer to that question is the pages of your Bible are still crisp white and your knees are still uncalloused from prayer, you may have a significant spiritual problem in the way you make decisions in life. Because for Peter, when he had to make this important decision, he went to the Word of God. He quotes two different verses from the Psalms, which he saw as applying directly to the situation that they were in right there. And the Scriptures told us, here's what we have to do. They were making decisions based on realizing they were living in fulfilled prophecy. Now that goes to my fifth point, this. They solved problems with their Bibles open and a dependence on God. It's similar, but it's different. Here it's not just that they saw themselves living in Old Testament prophesied times, but they solved all their problems with their Bibles open and a dependence on God. Notice how he quotes two Old Testament verses here. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's a reference, what they believed, to an Old, it's to an Old Testament psalm verse. They're saying, that was telling us what happened to Judas. We should have seen that coming. And then he quotes another one. Let another take his office, verse 20. Again, that's quoting from a different psalm. Psalm 109, verse 8, where it's saying, another person has to take his office. And they're realizing, okay, Bible's open. Here's how we do this. Here's how we're making this decision. I'm certain they were going through many other verses besides that. Think of other verses in the Old Testament that certainly they would have known of that would explain Judas's life. Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You think that was going through their mind as they were reflecting on what Judas did to Jesus? How about Psalm 55, verse 12 and 13? For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. As they were processing their grief, you think they were going back to the Psalms and with their Bibles open, making these decisions? And then they cast lots. Isn't that interesting? Well, why did they cast lots? It's almost like rolling dice, isn't it? Like, why did they do that? In the Old Testament, that was a way of discerning God's will. Qualified men would basically come together, and there were a number of times where they would be under the Holy Spirit together, they'd pray fervently together, and then they'd essentially cast lots. In the Old Testament, the priests actually wore these jewels on their chest piece that basically they could take off to discern God's will. And here they're doing something very similar. Is that something we should still be doing today to discern God's will? No, is the answer. Why not? Because in the very next passage, the Holy Spirit gets poured out, and it gets given to men. 
And then the Holy Spirit comes in and the Holy Spirit begins to work truth and clarity and discernment into us. And we now live in the Holy Spirit days. This is the last time you will ever see casting lots in the Bible. Right here. The moments before the Holy Spirit comes on them. Now what's the point here? Once again, if your Bibles are crisp white and your knees are not callous and you're making important decisions in your life, I'm afraid you have a significant problem. God has called you to make decisions biblically in your life, together with your community. And I have to end this sermon today with a deep, heartfelt, pastoral plea. There are some in here today that it's not just that you're not making decisions biblically, but it's because you don't yet actually know Jesus. This church was changed because they met the resurrected Jesus. And the fruit of that was obvious They were in the Bible regularly. They couldn't not. That's how they were making decisions. They were coming to prayer regularly. They were deeply ingrained in community together. The first thing that happened was this deep meeting of the resurrected Jesus in their life where they met him and they realized all the promises were fulfilled, that he truly forgives their sins by his blood shed on the cross. And everything changed about them. And the fruit that came afterwards was not them just tacking on these things, but it was actually a life of meeting Jesus resurrected. Jesus says that when he returns, he will separate the wheat from the chaff. That means that among the wheat, there are chaff that grows. Among the good wheat, even among churches. In a room like this, I pray that there are many who genuinely know the Lord. But I'm certain that there's at least a handful that don't yet. And as I see this early New Testament community and the way they're making decisions and the way they see their lives fulfilling prophecy, I can't help but ask ourselves and ask you this. Are you the wheat or are you the chaff? Because if everything I'm saying is bizarre to you, if everything I'm saying is like, that sounds like someone else's life, I'm not saying you are the chaff, but there's certainly not the fruit that's showing me that you are the wheat. And what I want to plead with you is, is that our life here on this earth is very short and Jesus is worthy of it all. Don't miss a moment to actually do the genuine hard work of personal reflection to say, have I actually been changed by the gospel? Or have I just ascended to some intellectual truths about what someone told me the gospel's about? Jesus died for you that you could have life to the full, the life that is really life, your sins forgiven and life eternal knowing him for all eternity. That is your eternity if you're in Christ. And if you don't know him yet, don't miss this moment. If Christianity to you has been ascending to some truths and coming to church from time to time, I'm calling you to something far more because the promises of this world cannot meet your deepest need. You will find yourself at the end of a very lonely road. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you look to him as the fulfillment of all the hope, of all the promises that were ever made, and forgiving your sin, you will find life to the full in accordance and obedience with how he has called you to live your life. And I plead with you this morning, make him your Lord. If you haven't done that yet, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. You can do it from your seats. And if you have already made that decision, I invite you to join in prayer with me as we pray right now. Heavenly Father, I pray for this room. I pray that we would be those who genuinely and authentically have put our faith in you. Jesus, I pray for those right now who are asking the question, why is this type of fruit not present in my life? 
And God, if they are chaff, I pray that there would be redeeming prayers being prayed right now, that they would trust in you, that they would confirm the promises that God made, that once your faith is in Jesus and you have genuinely made him Lord of your life, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray for new life in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.